So good morning again. We are right at the beginning of this new series that we're doing called The Things of the Spirit. And we kicked it off uh, last week with 10 works of the Spirit. And we're continuing uh, today. And this is going to be a longer series for us, maybe in total about 12-ish weeks. And um, let me, before we get any further, let me pray and then we'll jump into this. Uh, Lord, thank you. You're with us today. By your Spirit, you're with us. And we pray that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would make your presence so tangible to us today, that we would experience you in a deeper way, in a, in a fresh way, in a powerful way, that we would know how much you want to relate to us and how to respond to you and how to have faith. And if there are any barriers for anyone here receiving you today, I pray that you would destroy those barriers, knock those barriers down, melt our hearts, that we will be open to being in your presence Today, I pray that. And I pray for anyone who doesn't yet believe, come and confirm it in their hearts, come and convict it in their hearts that they would find faith in you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, right, right at the beginning here, I think it's important for us to clarify and to say that the Holy Spirit is not a thing or an it or a blob or a floating nebula of flashing lights. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. We believe in the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Holy Spirit actually helps us and has an important part to play even in our understanding of the gospel message itself. Right at the beginning of the Bible, we learn that God made two humans and he put them in a paradise, that they would live together, that they would work together, that they would build a life together, that they would live in peace and harmony. And of course, all of that was ruined when housing associations were invented. But before that happened, everything was perfect and great and harmony was there. And the purpose of that, the reason that God uh, put them in the garden to work and to live and to live in harmony with each other actually was so that he could walk with them, so that God could be with the human race, that we would be friends with God, that we would have an intimate connection with God. So from the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God is a relational God, that he wants to know us, to walk with us, to be with us. But this nearness with God that we were given at the very beginning, it was broken, tragically broken when those first two people, Adam and Eve, decided to follow their own desires, to go their own pathway. And because they did that, they lost the most important thing that God had ever given us, which is all day, every day, everyone being naked all the time. No, no, no. That's, that's, not the mo- that's important, but not the most important thing. The most important, excuse my humor, the most important thing that God gave us was his very presence. His very presence. Now, in consequence to losing this broken relationship with God, um, what we see is we see that Adam and Eve experienced death. And it's important for us to understand that the physical death wasn't the primary, or it it was a later effect. The the death they experienced, it wasn't physical immediately, that that came later on, that it brought death into the world so that death became a reality so that then eventually people would physically die. But the death that was brought in immediately was a spiritual death. It was a spiritual death. So in the, 
in, in humanity's rebellion against God and distrusting God and not believing in, in God's promise and God's truth and God's words and turning to our own desires, we, something so terrible happened to us, which explains why everything, we want it to be good, it should be good, but it's, it's broken and awful. And in this fall from grace, it's, it's more serious than we could ever imagine because God is the source of all joy. He's the source of all life. He's the source of all goodness and hope. And he's the source of all those things. And so the further away you get from God, the less joy you have, the less hope you have, the, the harder things become, the further you get away. And so the, the big story, the big overarching story in the first big chunk of the Bible in the, the Old Testament is a redemptive plan. God has this redemptive plan to restore us to his presence, that we might know God's presence again, that we might walk with God again. That's what's um, going on. And so God comes and he makes this promise, this unbreakable promise, what the Bible calls a covenant. And he makes this unbreakable promise with this guy called Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I want to bless everybody else. And the outworking of this, and so, so then everybody who would then have the same faith as Abraham would have that same promise. And the nature of that promise, there's different things, there's, there's a list of things within that, that covenant, but the, the foundation of it, the biggest thing, the biggest outworking of it is that we would be with God, that we would know God again. And so God came to the Israelites or the Hebrews when they were in Egyptian slavery and he busted them out of slavery and he they're in the wilderness, and what do we see? We see God's presence with them, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see that God's blessing upon them was his very presence to them. We see it in Leviticus chapter, well, I don't have it here, actually, up here. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. It says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and you will be and sorry, among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Even all of the predictions in the Old Testament of a coming Messiah, all the prophecies about the coming of Jesus, they're direct promises about God coming to us and showing us what he's like, coming to us. And so the prophet Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We just looked at these verses not too long ago at Christmas time. Isaiah prophesied this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see in these promises, these predictions of a coming Messiah, that in this particular one, we see a child's going to be born, but this child is going to be called Mighty God. This is a promise of God directly, personally coming to us. And so in the first big chunk of the Bible, the Old Testament, we see the failure of the people to actually be made right with God. Even under God's guidance, even under divine guidance and divine revelation of how to go about doing it, we see the failure of people to actually be able to do it. And then in, in the New Testament, in the, in the second covenant that we're given with the coming of Jesus, the Son, the God Almighty, being born in the flesh, we now see something different has happened. 
There's now a different work that's happened. And if we just hit uh, accept terms and conditions without actually reading the terms and conditions, which is what we have to do most of the time to actually use the things we want to use. But if, if we do that with God, if we just say, just accept the terms and conditions without understanding the terms and conditions, we won't realize how radical, how incredible this new work is that God has done. That God broke into human history personally, directly, in the flesh to show us what God is like. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I can imagine, I've thought this, I'm sure lots of people have thought, thought this, but I imagine a lot of Christians, we might wish that we could have walked with Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. Can you imagine, oh, it would have, wouldn't it have been amazing just to have been there, just to have been there at the Sermon on the Mount? Or when he, he's, God's, you know, Jesus is healing people. You know, I, I, if I've got sickness, man, I'd be there. I'd be crying out for Jesus to heal me. Or, you know, just to have, have, have met the disciples. And wouldn't that have been incredible? Wouldn't that have been better? Jesus himself actually tells us that's, in, that's an incorrect way of thinking. Actually, something better than having God walk on the earth again like God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, something better is coming. Something that we hadn't planned on, something we didn't understand. John chapter 16 verse 7 says this, Nevertheless, I tell you, this is from Jesus, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the word of Jesus to us. It's an advantage. Jesus is saying in the age of the church, in the age of the Holy Spirit, there's this advantage that we have that they didn't have. And we've got to square this away in our minds because we might think, well, yeah, but, but, G, but surely being with Jesus would have been more advantageous. Jesus is saying that's the wrong way to think about it. That's the wrong way to think about it. We're now in this time that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church, available to all Christians, to all believers. And, we, we, and he was, Jesus is absolutely right. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit now, but very soon, very soon, this summer, we're going to have Mission Impossible 7. There's a lot of advantages to living in this time. That's not quite what Jesus meant, but you get my point. One of the most dramatic ways God went about doing this is in the death of Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, what we learn is we learned about um, in the temple at that time in Jerusalem, in the temple, there's, the temple is made up of two primary chambers, the, what's called the holy place and then the most holy place. And separating those two chambers was a curtain. And the, the most holy place was... Uh, a place that only the high priest could go once a year, and it's, it could be, it's kind of a, a symbol or a representation of the, the private quarters of God, kind of like the, the, the chamber, for, you know, a king's chamber, if you will, that God is our king. We don't have a, a palace like other nations have. We don't have a king like that, but God is our king, and, and he will meet you know, one dude once a year, the high priest, in the most holy place, so that offer sacrifices for our sin, and God's presence will be there, and we'll meet with them. And that's, that was, that's the story of the Old Testament. But what we learn is, we learn that when Jesus was crucified, when he died on the cross, in dramatic supernatural power, that curtain that divided the most holy place from the holy place, 
that curtain was supernaturally torn in two. And the meaning behind that is amazing because what that means is it means that the presence of God that was separated, that was private, that could only be accessed on occasion by one person very infrequently to pay for the people's sins. Jesus made a single sacrifice. They had to make sacrifices over and over. Jesus made a permanent, single, sacrificial, substitutionary atonement for our sin. I'm using lots of big, fancy, long words. Don't worry about it. It just means Jesus did something amazing in our place. And when he did that, that, that curtain was torn. And what that means is that means the presence of God that the people went to in the, or the priest went to in the most holy place that would cleanse them of their own sin, that presence is now accessible and available to all those who will believe. And that presence is the Holy Spirit. That presence is the Holy Spirit. Now we may ask, well, why did God do it this way? That's a fair question. Why, why a tabernacle and then a temple and the holy place and the most holy place and the curtain? And why priests and sacrifices? Why do it that way if it's just going to be Jesus superseding it or fulfilling it or replacing it eventually? Why not just jump to Jesus? Why not just get to the good stuff right off the bat? Why waste all that time with all this other stuff? Well, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One is to understand that to have faith in an omniscient or powerful God is to trust that he has all the wisdom, more wisdom than we could ever have, but he has all the wisdom. And that if God did it this way, if God did salvation this way, if God wrote his story in the history of mankind, in the Bible, this way, this therefore is not just the best way that it could have happened, it is perhaps the only way that it could have happened. That God in his wisdom knew this is the way. There's no other way. In fact, God could have a million genius reasons that we would never understand for doing it this way. In light of that, though, we still actually do have some insight into why God did it this way. This new work of grace, the grace of Jesus coming to us, this single sacrifice made on our behalf to take away our sin, this work, this incredible work of Jesus, it shines brightest and shines in a way that you could never imagine, against the backdrop of insufficient ways to achieve salvation. So the Old Testament is a story of people trying their hardest, even under the direct instruction of God, follow these ceremonies, do this, have a priestly system, have a temple, do this on these days, do this on this day, make this sacrifice, make this offering, do all this stuff. Even under God's divine plan, divine direction, they couldn't keep it up, they couldn't do it. The backdrop is all of our human efforts are insufficient in order to save ourselves. Only Jesus could do it. And so the work of salvation of Jesus on the cross, dying in our place for our sin to redeem us forever, to promise us eternal life in heaven forever, against the backdrop of all these insufficient ways, clarifies and magnifies what Jesus has done. It makes it shine brighter than you could possibly imagine. So the journey... The journey through the Old Testament and now into the New Testament reveals to us this, this wonderful truth that God was so patient, that God had a plan. He wanted to go about it the best way, the wisest way to show us the only way that it could have happened. In fact, there's, there's, the overarching story of the Bible is this pattern of God, this redemptive pattern 
of God relationally getting closer and closer to his people. We were broken. We were torn apart. We were separated from God. And the story is God saying, I'm coming, and this is, I've come this far. Now I'm coming closer, and I'm coming even closer. I'm coming even closer. So we traced it already, but let's trace it again. He comes to Abraham with this promise. I'm going to be with you. And then he comes to Abraham's children and blesses them. Then that's in Genesis, right? And then in Exodus, what do we see? We see the, the people are released from slavery. They're, they come out, of, you know, and they promise their own land. And then, you know, the, the, the cloud is there and the pillar of fire is there. And then we see the Holy Spirit being poured out on prophets. That prophets would speak the words of God to God's people. And then ultimately we see that the, the Son is born, that God has come in the flesh. And we think, well, isn't that the greatest expression of God relationally coming to us again? And we re- we learn from Jesus, no, it's no, not even that. Now the Spirit's going to be poured out to empower the church. The Spirit's going to fill God's church. And this Spirit is available to all those who believe. And this gets us one step closer, one step closer to the ultimate aim, the ultimate goal, which is Revelation chapter 21, verse th- uh, 3. It says, and I heard, a la- this is in the future, this is a prediction of the future, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the end game. That's the end result. We're going to be fully, perfectly in God's presence forever. We learned last week that the Holy Spirit has many roles. He does lots of different things. There was 10 of them that we looked at in particular. Maybe more, maybe less. Maybe some could be combined, different ways to look at it. He has many, many roles, but one of the roles that has got to stand out to us in this season, in this period of history that we live in, in the, the age of the church, the age of the coming of the Holy Spirit, is this work in the book of Acts that we see, the beginning of the church. So Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this, well, it says, And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's an important phrase there. You will be baptized with, this is Jesus saying this, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The fulfillment of that came probably about 10 days afterwards, I think it was. And they received power from the Holy Spirit. And on that day... 3,000 people became Christians and were added to their numbers, and incredible things happened. And so we see in, these, in this sequence of events, in the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church, and Jesus saying, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit, we see the necessity that the church, Christians, we need God's presence. If we're going to have any hope of, do, of, of seeing the fruit that they saw, well, we need the power that they had. We need the power that they had. Now, and this, and, and this act here of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church is another fulfillment of God, God's promise to relationally get closer and closer and closer to us. That we might have more and more intimacy, more and more reconnection with God. Now, every Christian, every person that believes in Jesus is sealed with the Holy Spirit. We looked at this last week, but I want to recap it. Every person who believes in Jesus is sealed. There's a a confirmation that happens. Jesus comes and makes his home within us by his Spirit. So all Christians are are people of the Spirit because 
we've got the Holy Spirit in us. And this, this work of regeneration, this happens kind of around the time that we place our faith in Jesus, where we're born again. And it, it's a radical change when your, your identity is changed in that way. And you're, you come alive, you find faith in Jesus. It's a wonderful, amazing thing. It's like everything goes from black and white into color. And it's, it's incredible. And then we see the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our character. Lots of different works of the Spirit, but we see that too. We see well, that, that's, a, that's a distinct work, isn't it? That's a, that's a unique work. That, that work is different to the work that we had in being sealed with the Spirit and, and, and being born again by the Spirit. Now, now the Holy Spirit is, is shaping my character and helping me grow more into the image of Jesus. That's, that's important. But now we also see, for these Christians in the book of Acts, we see, well, now... Jesus is promising power. He's promising another work of the Spirit here. You can receive power from the Spirit. We see this, these are distinct, unique works of the Spirit. We have to understand this. These verses we just read, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus says to them, you're going to be baptized in the Spirit not many days from now. He said that to people who were already believers. Peter had already said, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Jesus said, this has been revealed to you from heaven. They had already preached the gospel to people. They had, they had abandoned him, but then they had come back to him. That's, a, that's an important theological question, actually, to ask yourself. is At what point were the disciples truly saved by Jesus? And at this point, they're already Christians. And he says to them, those who are, who are already Christians, well, wait, there's more. You need more. And so then a few verses on from this, Acts chapter eight verse, sorry, Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power. So this, we've got a couple of phrases here from Jesus saying, You're going to be baptized in the Spirit, not many days from now. And then just a couple of verses later, he's saying, You're going to receive power from the Spirit. And that, that power is a fulfillment, is a description of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The, word bap- the, the term to be baptized in the Spirit, this is a biblical term. It appears in the first five books of the New Testament. It appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. It comes even from the mouth of Jesus here. It was John the Baptist who first used the phrase, but Jesus says, well, I'm here to do this work, to baptize you in the Spirit. It's Jesus who baptizes us in the Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul, interestingly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he makes this comment. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And then there he says also, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, to be, to be baptized in the spirit and to receive power like Jesus is talking about, that's a distinct work from being saved. What Paul's talking about here, to be baptized into one body, for one, in one spirit we were baptized in one body, made to drink of one spirit, probably talking about salvation. He's probably talking about the moment that, that somebody becomes a true believer in Jesus. It's not exactly, we're not exactly clear which work of the Spirit is, because remember, we looked at it last week, there's 10 of them. So technically, of all of the works of the Spirit, you could say you're being baptized into any of those works, because... The word baptized, when, when the Bible was translated into English, they didn't use an English word to describe what baptism is. They just used the Greek word. We just take the Greek word, and we now, so now we, we have, in our language, we have this word baptism, which is directly from the Greek. 
because we just didn't, we just, I guess they didn't feel like they had a good word for it. So we just, well, just use the Greek word for it. But to be baptized means to be plunged. It means to be immersed in. It means to be, or dipped into. And so you could, I think you could say, so when Jesus is saying you're going to be baptized in the Spirit, you're going to receive power, that's one work of the, that's one way to be baptized in the Spirit, is to receive supernatural power from God for supernatural ministry. That, that's happening here. Paul, this verse we're looking at here um, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it looks like he's saying, hey, we were baptized in, you know, in one spirit, baptized into one body. We're all made to drink of one spirit. Well, you could apply this, you know, if you come to, under strong conviction of the spirit, you might say, I've been baptized into the conviction of the spirit. Because you, you, essentially you've been plunged into it. You've been immersed into that. So, you, so the word baptized can be used, it's, it's a descriptive word to say, to describe an experience of going deeper into a work of God. And so it's a biblical term to be baptized in the spirit. It could be applied to any of the works of the spirit. And so it doesn't, in one sense, the, the phrase itself, we don't want to get too hung up on the, you know, being baptized with the Spirit. We don't want to get too hung up on that phrase. It's a helpful phrase. Jesus used the phrase. The key that I want to get to here in the long overarching work of the relational power of God, the presence of God getting closer and closer and closer to us, is this moment where he says, you will receive power, that the Holy Spirit is going to come into the church, into the disciples, and those who were already saved received power because there was more for them. They had given into fear. They were terrified. They abandoned Jesus. They denied Jesus. They needed courage. They needed spiritual gifts. They needed to receive power that they might proclaim the gospel. They might pray for the sick to be healed, that they might speak in other languages. They might prophesy, do incredible, extraordinary works for God, which is what they then did as a result of receiving power. There was more for them. Now, some may ask, well, this, you know, being baptized in the power of the Spirit, was this just a, okay, it was a distinct work for them at the beginning of the church, but was it just for them? Was it just such a special thing that God was doing at that time that that, that's not supposed to happen anymore. We're not really supposed to have that anymore. That was just something for them. That's a valid question to ask. And some Christians will claim that. Some, some churches will teach that. But I, I disagree with that. I think that's wrong. In no place in the Bible, there's not one verse that says that Jesus doesn't want to fill his disciples with the Spirit's power anymore. He doesn't want to baptize us with his power anymore. There's not one verse that teaches that. In fact, it's the opposite. You actually see it's the opposite of that. There's a pattern in the New Testament. We've got this list here we're going to go through. The New Testament pattern of receiving the Spirit's power. The disciples who were already saved received power in Acts 2, so we just looked at that. And the next one says, the same Christians from Acts chapter 2 then received more at a prayer gathering in Acts chapter 4. Then Philip, who saw many saved in Samaria, and sometime later, they, those people received power through Peter and John laying hands on them in Acts chapter 8. Then the Apostle Paul was a Christian for three days before he received power in Acts chapter 9. And then the Gentiles were saved through the hearing of the gospel and also received power in Acts chapter 10. And then those in Ephesus received power through the laying on of Paul's hands after being water baptized in Acts chapter 19. So let's keep this up for a minute because feel free to study this and look at this. This is a cool little Bible study you can do. You can look at Acts chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 19. You can look at all those. There's a pattern here. And there's, there's no teaching in the Bible that says, oh, by the way, this has stopped. God doesn't want to do this anymore. 
there are distinct moments, distinct works of the Spirit. It's normal to be sealed by the Spirit, to be born again, to be made alive in Christ, to be sealed, and you've got the Holy Spirit with you, shaping your character, promising you eternity with God. You've got that happening, but also, but also, you know, you're going to need some power to do, to do some, because God's got great plans for his church, to fill his church with power. And you even see it, it's, it wasn't just for them, you see it throughout church history, and you see it today as well. This is actually, this, the, the Bible's account of how the early Christians received power from the Spirit lines up with people's testimony today even, throughout church history. So my, my story in this, I, and I'm always hesitant to share my story or for, when, when people share their testimony about experiencing the Holy Spirit's power because it is different for different people. That There's no paragraph in the Bible that says, now, listen up, when you, when you receive the power of the Spirit, this happens and this happens and, this like, and it feels just like this and then you got this and... There's no paragraph in the Bible that says that. It just says you're filled with power. So it's different for different people. I'll share my experience with you, though. I, I had become a believer when I was, when I was young. I, I remember com- coming to my mum and realizing I, I want my mum, my mummy, uh, realizing uh, my mom, mom. I can never say the American mom. And, and I, re- I, mean, I remember the day I realized I wasn't a believer. I realized I, I, you know, I don't trust in Jesus. And I, I went to, to her and I, I said, I want to be a Christian. You know, and, and, and she prayed with me. And I remember just being so overwhelmed, like crying and just being so grateful, feeling convicted, feeling grateful. And um, I remember that's a very precious memory I have. And, but it was probably about eight years. And I remember being at, I, was at, I think it was a youth conference. And the guy that was teaching he was talking about receiving power from the Spirit. And he talks about like, it's like being clothed with power. And it's almost like putting on like a military jacket or a superhero costume or something. You know, they're using like, you know, youth terminology to help you understand it. And, um, and he said, you know, if you haven't experienced that, like, come get prayer, you know, respond. And I thought, well, I was terrified because I was, you know, I didn't want to get up in front of people. But I went forward for prayer. And because I thought, yeah, I can't think of anything like that, you know. I know, I know I know God. I know I've been convicted of my sin. I know I belong to him. But, but I, that, that power, I, I don't know about that. And, um, and honestly, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of Christians scratch their head. You start talking about signs and wonders and miracles and start talking about things like that. And a lot of Christians will scratch their head in, in Western context saying, ah, that stuff doesn't happen anymore because I haven't seen it. Okay, because you haven't seen something doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? That's not logical. We, un- we understand that, right? That's bad logic. God's word is our source of truth. It's the teaching. We see the pattern of God here. And we want that to be true in our own lives. And so for me, I went forward in this, in this time of worship. And people were, it was promised that people were going to pray for us, but actually no one prayed for me. So I don't know what happened there. So I was trying to <laughs> not deal with issues of rejection and be like, no one cares about me. No one prayed for me. But it didn't matter, actually, because uh, I remember just raising my hands and just asking God to fill me and... Um, you know, I, 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 it felt, I felt power, I felt energy, felt like electricity flowing through my body. It felt um, exciting. It was very exciting, very um, energizing. And I, I felt this joy bubbling up inside of me. And I just started speaking out in different languages and saying things I didn't understand what it meant. And no one told me to do that. That's just what, what happened. You see that happening in Scripture. That's not everyone's story, not everyone's ex- experience, but that was my experience. And then 
what happened as a result of that was I suddenly got this fire lit inside of me. It's like, I got to tell all my friends about Jesus. I have to tell everybody I know about Jesus. I like, my, my desire to witness just, it was like 10x or 100x. It was just, something happened. I went, that summer I went back to school the next year, you know, next term and um, I approached my, my, my principal of our, our school and said, I, I want to share the gospel in our assembly, which is the whole entire school. It's not just your grade it's, or even your class. It's, it's everybody in the whole entire school, which I did. And I, I almost threw up before I did it because I was so worried. I was like, well, if, you know, and that moment when I received the power from the Spirit, I really was convinced I should do this. And now in this moment, I'm like terrified to do this. <laughs> like, you know, it's amazing how those things happen to you. And um, you know, God, God helped me do that. Again, that was, that was a calling. That was something that God put on my heart. Again, that's not, not everyone does stuff like that. That's, you know, some people do, some people don't. But there's, there's power to, to, to witness for Jesus. And perhaps you've heard the story of D.L. Moody, who started Moody Church here in Chicago. He had been a Christian minister for many years and, you know, effective preacher and uh, leader. And, but he felt like something was lacking in his ministry. And uh, these two old ladies came to him. And they started talking to him about receiving the power of the Spirit and questioning him about it. And I think he was a little annoyed at them. Because, you know, as a leader, you, 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 know, you don't want to portray any weakness, right? That's a terrible idea. Isn't that a terrible idea to show that you're like a normal person like everyone else and you have your own faults and failings? And Just remember, don't put me on a pedestal, all right? If you put me on a pedestal, you'll be very disappointed. All right? Don't put any leader on a pedestal. We're just regular people. We're just with a particular calling. Everyone has a particular calling. I'm, you know, somebody in a leadership role just has a particular calling. Um, what's your calling? What's, what, what's, what's your calling? This is my calling. What's your one? Uh, we shouldn't compare our callings. We've just got to figure out what it is God's calling us to. D.L. Moody, though, listened to these two ladies, and they share with him, hey, you, we, we're not sure if you've received the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, can you imagine that conversation? <laughs> wow. And so he was, I think he was a little bothered by this, but came to be convinced by it. Yeah, I need power. I need, I'm missing something. And so he started to pray and ask God to fill him and t- touch him. And it was one day he was walking down the street, minding his own business. And he said the hand of God moved on him in such a profound way. And he, he describes it like liquid love. Like he felt liquid love pouring over him. And he actually had to ask God to stop because it was too much. He had to ask God to stay his hand. That's how he, he wrote it in his testimony. Stay, God, stay your hand. It's too much. The good news for us is, is that all we need is to ask in prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all we need to do. We just need to ask in prayer for the power of, for the, power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If you get power and something dramatic happens, you've got boldness to share your faith, you prophesy, you pray, speaking a different language, there's something powerful, there's you, you, whatever it might be. You pray for the sick and see them healed. You cast demons out of people, whatever the power is, because the power is for something, right? You're not just receiving power, so you'd be like, I'm juiced up, I'm ready to go. It's not just like, the power is to do the mighty works of God. That's why you get the power. And so, even if you get power, it's not like a one and done thing. We need to be like those disciples in Acts chapter 4. We, I mean, compare Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, I dare you. It's the same group of Christians who received power on the day of Pentecost. They're now in Acts chapter 4. They're now in another prayer gathering. And it says again, the same group, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They received, and there was an earthquake when it happened. Now that's power. That's power. Wouldn't it be crazy if there was an earthquake right now? I really just would. That would be amazing. Can't make that stuff happen. That's God's, that's God's power, right? You just pray and ask. Pray and ask. 
One thing that happened in the New Testament was they laid hands on each other, right? We, we read that in some of, we saw that in some of those verses. They're laying hands. Why do you do that? Well, what we know is we know that receiving the power of the Holy Spirit is not the same as getting saved for this reason is that nobody gets saved through the laying on of somebody's hands. That would be a heresy. I cannot save somebody by putting my hand on them. And, and, and so we know that receiving the power of the Spirit is, is different to being saved by the Spirit because you don't lay your hands on somebody to save them. No apostles ever did that. The Pope doesn't do that. Nobody does that. But they laid their hands on each other. They might receive power. You can do that. You're allowed to do that. You can, if you've received power, then you just pray. and you, you, know, you put your hand on someone's head, on their shoulder, on their back, you know, appropriate places, of course. And you pray for, because we just want power. We don't want anything else. We're just wanting power from the Holy Spirit. And believe in faith. That's how they did it. And it's Jesus who gives the Holy Spirit. We want to come with expectation. We don't have anything to fear. If it's Jesus doing it, we have nothing to fear. In fact, we have a lot to gain. We have more relationship with God to gain. We have a closeness to God to gain, to get closer. And we have help. You get power, you're getting help. See, before, you know, I struggled before I was timid. I was timid to share my faith. Or I, I, you know, I see other people speaking things, sharing things about, you know, God said this to them and God said that to them. And other people seem to read the Bible and it just comes alive to them in certain ways. And I just, just don't get it. It doesn't click. Ask for power. Have you asked for power? Ask for power. Let's have the band come up. Here's what we're going to do. I, I'm very skeptical and, and careful. I, I don't ever want to make a spectacle out of these types of things. So at Trinity, we're, we're very clear on the Word, we're very strong on the Word, but also we want to be strong on the Spirit. But we want to do that in a way that doesn't create a spectacle, that doesn't cause confusion or doesn't create barriers for people. I want to pray for us. Next week, we're going to do it where we're going to ask people to actually come and get their, you know, Hey, let's lay hands. Let's expect to receive power. But we're going to step our way into this. We're going to build up to it. And yeah, it's quite. Thank you. Go ahead and close your eyes. so inclined you can hold your hands out like you're receiving there's nothing special about doing that it's just an indication of your own heart towards God indicating outwardly God I want you I'm hungry for you come embrace me God do you expect that the Holy Spirit will come because we have a relational God who loves us has his plan to come close to us to restore what's been lost in every way possible and receiving power from the spirit is actually just another way that we get closer to God and we can experience that liquid love like D.L. Moody talked about Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit come this is your church we're your people 
we need your power. We need your spirit. We need your spirit. Now you might sense, you might sense nothing, that's okay. It's important to just keep coming humbly before God to keep asking him. Perhaps you sense something bubbling up inside. You sense you want to speak something out to God. A prayer or a song. And you can just do that between you and God. You don't have to share that with anyone right now. You just do that between you and God. Holy Spirit, come by your power. Fill this room. Fill every heart with your power. Lord, we want to be witnesses for you. We need your power. We need courage. Lord, we lack courage. We can't do it by ourselves. We're timid. We're too afraid. What will happen to me? Will I be rejected by people? Will I be judged by people? Will I lose my job? What will happen to me if I stand up for Jesus? So if I speak the truth of the gospel, what will happen to me? What will happen to me if I offer to pray for someone and they're not healed? What will happen? Oh God, take away our fears. Help us be sensitive to your voice. Help us to hear the the prophecies, the prophetic words that you want us to speak. Help us to know the, the languages that you want us to pray in. Help us. Come. Come. By your power. Now we're gonna, the band's gonna lead us in this song as we sing you don't have to sing along with the words you can sing your own song you can pray your own prayer you can respond to whatever God is doing right now whatever the Holy Spirit is doing right now Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit come by your power fill hearts and minds